Hey everyone, uh, this is the first, I guess it's the first episode of uh, our recorded talks at Red House Books. We've been doing talks at Red House for quite a while now, but now we've uh, decided to record them. And this is our first, uh, first one that we're putting up. It was done on the 19th of April 2019 with D Hunter on their, on their book, Chav Solidarity. It's a great talk, three and four, a really nice uh really nice reading and uh, question and answers. The song playing underneath this is AAA Powerline by Echo2K. Um, yeah, my name's Dee Hunter. Can people hear me at the back? I've got my natural speaking voice is quite quiet. Also, I mumble and I'll talk too quickly which is really good for these kind of events. Um, <laughs> if I'm doing any of those things, please be really like Oi, louder, more coherently, slower, whatever. Like, it's fine, just do it. Otherwise, you won't be able to hear me, and what's the fucking point of being here? Um, thank you for coming. It seems a lot nicer out there than it does in here, so I appreciate that. Um, yeah, so I'm going to read a couple of chapters from the book at some point, probably quite soon. Um, then there'll be a bit of time for question and answer, and depending on how you guys feel, you can have a discussion about how the themes relate maybe to this particular city or the things you guys are involved in or you can keep asking questions it's different for different uh, events so far but yeah um, I've been told that I need to give a bit of context for the book uh, so I'm going to do that now uh, I guess the context is I wrote most of the first draft of most of the essays about two years ago while I was doing night shifts at a care home um, at that point they were just rants on Facebook pretty much and didn't make a lot of sense um, not long after, not all of them were, I think about like nine or ten of them were like that. Um, not long after I had a mental breakdown and so spent three months convalescing from that. A little while after recovering, I went back to the essays, started working on them with some help from quite a few people, um, edited them. I'm like, I'm both dyslexic and I have a shocking grasp of the English language, not the English language so much, more a bit of that, but grammar basically. So I need a lot of help and I got a lot of help from various people, most of whom who are thanked in the book. I don't think I've forgotten anyone. They've not mentioned it if I have. Um, yeah, and a few other extra ass essays were added. They were came out of like, um, I guess in the last 14, 15 years I've been involved in like, I guess they call it, yes, am I going too fast? Or you just, oh, no, are you waving? All oh, right, fair enough. <laughs> That's just fucking confused. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. Sorry. Sorry. Right. <laughs> Not confusing at all. Um, yeah, so last 14, 15 years, I've been involved in, I guess, what would be called far left um, organizing or activism. Um, and for most of that time, I was one of the very few people from the specific portion of the working class that I'm from, which is either chavs, if you like that language, or underclass, if you like that language, or just the bottom of the fucking pile, if you can't think of anything else to say. Um, I grew up, um, some of this, is a lot of this is covered in the book, but I'll give you a little bits. Um, from mainly, first 10 years was with a recently settled Irish traveller family. Uh, that's the majority of one side. And then um, my father's side was, you know, white British, but 
unemployed for generations kind of thing. Um, both sides were involved in, um, for want of a better phrase, um, informal economy work. Um, and that's also where I kind of ended up for quite some time. So that, that coming from that place and going to the, um, the activist scene, I saw so many commonalities, um, lots of differences, but plenty of commonalities which were not recognised. Um, and was very frustrated with a lot of the lefty activist scenes responses to people who have spent who spend their lives oh god that's gone um spend their lives in poverty essentially for most of the time and how that to me didn't make sense and wasn't going to move us towards the social change revolution or whatever it is that we might be working towards without being able to engage yeah the proletariat or whatever you want to call it so the essays were a response to that, and at the same time, trying to answer some of the questions I was asking myself um, about um, how we engage better with everyone. How we sorry, come in, drunk. Um, yeah, and so how we can organise, how can we how can we grow as um, a movement, um, and also trying to reflect on some of the like poisonous as aspects of white supremacist patriarchy that I inhabit and express and I've learned and had to unpick or I'm still in the process of unpicking um, as many of my friends will tell me um, so yeah I'm going to read this it's quite strange I think you are now I think you're second in the list of like events where there's been familiar faces <laughs> I think I can see six <laughs> Bristol still wins but that's fine uh, the, the first essay I'm going to read is the title essay Child Solidarity um, yeah, I will do my best and remember if I'm talking too fast, talking too slow, no, I'm not going to do that, too fast, too quiet or mumbling, please let me know. Um, and I will try and pause when there is full stops and commas. When people say chav, they mean only one thing. They'll have, have different definitions, but they'll mean the same thing. They'll mean scum, they'll mean those not educated in the right way. They'll mean keep away from my family. They'll mean criminal and they'll mean you're worthless and it's your own fucking fault. The first time I heard the word was when I was called a chaffy twat by a pig who'd arrested me for going equipped to rob. I didn't follow the press in those days, so I didn't know how, how regularly the word was used in the mid nineties, but eventually the idea trickled down and I, and I understood what they meant. They meant you're not good enough. You have none of the qualities we're looking for in a human being. You're a disgrace. You're a violent thug, you're lazy, and you're stupid. Chav was a shorthand way of dehumanising a large group of people who responded with indifference towards those who had benefited from their dispossession. There are worse things to be called than a chav for sure, because the thing about being called a chav is that it is shorthand. Before, people had just had a tendency to call you violent, lazy, stupid and criminal, which, if said to you every day by teachers, social workers, pigs and other state administrators, have a far more violent effect on your psyche. For me, chavs are people living in the UK, born after the neoliberal turn in the 1970s, those who have been traumatised, marginalised and demonised by government policies in the UK via that turn. Those to whom operating within informal economies is less psychologically violent than engaging with mainstream society and are deemed council house and violent because of this. I'm 38, pushing 50 now, and it's been a long time since anyone called me a chav as a way of stripping me of my humanity. 
to those around me, I imagine I'm more like a librarian who shops at JD, and that's fine. <laughs> but I still identify with the Chav name, and I take it as my responsibility to have an eye out for the latest generation of young people who are labelled in such a way. Because it's a class thing. You get called a Chav, and you're being told you're not working class, you're beneath that, and you'll never escape it. You are the underclass forever and always. Many of the essays I've included in this book try to highlight the humanity of the underclass Chav communities, the things that have have to be done within them to survive and thrive and how neither pity nor disgust are relevant responses to these communities experiences. Most of all I've tried to emphasize the values of solidarity, mutual aid and self-defense that exist within those communities. I'm going to talk about a few more examples of this just to get you in the right frame of mind. I spent several years in various young offenders institutes before I was 17. These were cages where I experienced incredible loneliness and desperation, where so much of my anger that I had built up during my life flared up on a daily basis. And I spent my days with dozens of other boys of a similar age who felt a similar way. During one six-month sentence in a YOI in Derbyshire, I lived alongside 20-something other boys. I was 14 and one of the youngest and smallest of the prisoners. I walked around like a lit fuse just waiting to kick off, but knew no one. My only visitor was a social worker who came to tell me how and why I was there and what I had to do to avoid coming back. Inside, there were small groups of other boys who, based on the experiences outside, the towns that they were from, or the colour of their skin, stuck to each other like glue. The groups constantly fought amongst each other and battled for supremacy over each other. While some of us were on shorter sentences, others knew that they were only biding their time before they got started up and were willing to take more risks in order to either establish their dominance over the other inmates or to build reputation inside and outside the prison. One of the oldest of these boys, who knew he wasn't getting out until he was at least 21, was particularly determined to achieve these two goals. He had built some credibility up because of his connections on the outside and his ability to bring in supplies, including trainers, game boys and booze, which he sold on to other inmates. This boy was universally reviled on the quiet. To his face, the other boy showed him respect and some faked fear because it curried favour with him. Towards the end of the summer, which had seemed particularly hot and was always the worst season to be locked up for obvious reasons, I had begun to develop a tenser than usual relationship with one of the screws. He had demanded please and thank yous for unlocking my door in the morning and locking it at night, pleasantries which at best I spat out. This had gone on for a bit until I told him to fuck off and he'd given me a swift punch to the gut which had me doubled over and spit in blood. A day later I chipped him up near the stairwell and he'd nearly gone tumbling down the stairs. I'd been severely sanctioned for this and been forced to clean the toilets with a toothbrush every day for a week. Each day as I cleaned the toilets he would come in and piss on into the bowl I was cleaning spraying onto my hands and face. My planned retaliation meant I had to get my hands on some sharp metal and having been banned from both kitchen and woodwork room for various other offences, I felt that my only alternative was to ask the older boy with the connections on the outside. Until that point our only interactions had been the occasional game of pool, so I assumed approaching him and soliciting his help would be difficult. He'd be aware that I'd be unable to afford to pay for anything with money and I was aware that even approaching him without that money might lead him to, hip to him and his friends kicking the shit out of me. But during lunch I saw him stand staring alone, staring out the window alone and went over to him. He stared back at me, laughed and told me I'd take him a fucking time. 
The next day, me, him, and three of his friends ambushed the screw, pinned him down, and beat the crap out of him whilst he screamed for help. As he did so, the other boys body checked, tripped, and grappled with the other two other screws who tried to come to his aid. It took about 20 minutes for them to restore their order, but by that point my knuckles were bloody from hitting the screw so hard and his face was going purple. It turned out that everyone had seen how the guard had been fucking with me, and some of, my, some of the older boys had already talked about intervening. But the general consensus had been that I had to step up first, I had to reach out and ask for the backup I needed before anything else got done. None of my mother's families had jobs, in the capitalist sense of the word. Most of them worked, but it was not in their mentality to go around factories, shops and bars asking if any jobs were going. It was not in their mentality either to go into the job centre. My grandfather's belief was that in no circumstances would he take handouts from the country that had done so much damage to his own. And I bring this up not as an indictment of those who do take state benefits, but as an indication of the man's belief system and the culture he instilled in his family. We were told to work for ourselves, no bosses, no state. We would ensure that our f food was on our plates and roofs were over our heads in our own way. This own way included hijacking lorries along the M62, killing and stealing livestock in the large industrial farms around Lancashire and Yorkshire, organising bare knuckle boxing and dogfights and a few other things. Those identified as males in the family were expected to help out, as were those who, like my dad, fucked their way into the family. As a seven-year-old, I was shown how to be lookout during a robbery and not long after, my cousins taught me how to steal a car. All the rewards for this were collectivised, except that my grandfather took as much as he wanted. Everyone else got according to their need, not their ability. One of my uncles was fiercely respected for the amount of money he brought into our family, but he lived in a one-bedroom flat, which was furnished with a mattress, TV and nothing else. I only have a thin recollection of the flat, but I'm not convinced it even had a bathroom. This was acknowledged but never challenged. It was raised, as, raised by others as an example of how we all should be. Just because you can make a lot of money doesn't mean you need a lot of money. I'm sure my uncle had enough to drink and feed himself, but in comparison to some of his siblings, he lived a frugal life. The money went to uncles and aunts with children instead so that the kids wouldn't go short. One of my grandmother's brothers was placed into what everyone called a top special sp space of spastics because his physical and mental needs were such that the family could not cope. There were discrepancies to all this. My grandfather took whatever he wanted from the collective part and I'm sure he would say that as the responsibility for everyone else was with him, it was only right. He was also a violent and abusive man who let outsiders abuse and violate his family if it suited him. But the culture of collectivization he instilled in the rest of us was real. If one of my cousins was given something they would share, it was in, without second thought. Nothing was saved for later, nothing was personal property. With my mother unable to take care of me and my sisters, we were viewed as temporary orphans who slept in the master's house. My grandfather did not need to take direct responsibility for us. His culture meant that every other family member who was able to, to took responsibility for our food, clothing, and any extras they could afford. Later, living in Radford in the early 90s, it wasn't always the easiest. The state had been on a mission to destroy communities like ours, Poverty was high and there, was still a, and there were a lot of angry people, but there were still many moments in which neighbourhoods stood together. We found a way, ways to make it clear if we were going to be fucked with, we would not provide the lubricant. One typical incident involves a couple of friends of mine, a brother and sister were 12, 13 years old. They lived with their aunt and a boyfriend who had severe drug and alcohol problems. 
Their uncle and aunt were not in a position to pay much attention to my friends, and just as I don't judge my own mother for being unable to do this for me, I don't judge them either. So the brother and sister spent most of their days doing what they wanted, going to school if they wanted an easy hot meal, or not going to school if they wanted to nick someone's wallet and go get a happy meal. My life was pretty similar, but unlike those two, unlike, but unlike myself, these two were placid and gentle. They didn't get into fights, and they didn't scream at adults who looked at them funny. I doubt they ever smashed a window of a shop the day after they'd been caught stealing from it. The brother even went to church every Sunday on his own. He said it was the most peaceful place in the world for him. I'd see them most days, and at least once a week we'd spend large portions of the day together. They had other friends and I had other friends, so we weren't inseparable or anything like that, but we lived real close and were bonded because of that. One day they both came running over to where I was, where I was at the corner of Bentick and Peffel, drinking with a couple of sex workers on their lunch break and a big dude called Malcolm, who I was tight with on and off for several years. The brother was screaming panic all over his face and his sister was clutching his arm tight, telling him that they had to go back home. He explained that they'd gone to, got to the hallway outside of the, their flat and saw that the house, outside their house were three men with baseball bats and crowbars. They'd bolted looking for help. Malcolm didn't think, just started running towards the flats with those on, the, with those on their lunch break and us three kids trailing behind him. We ran to the tower block, up the five flights of the stairs, down the hallway and into the flat which now had the door hanging off its hinges. I was a few paces behind Malcolm and the brother, but when I got in, the uncle had blood pouring from his head and the aunt was screaming in the corner, as one man with a baseball bat pinned her to the wall. Malcolm had a second man pinned to the floor and the brother appeared to be shadow boxing as a third, as a third man swung a baseball bat at him. There was a lot of screaming, but not a lot of sense being made. The two sex workers ran at the man, pinning the aunt to the wall. The first got so, hit so hard round the mouth that a tooth flew out, but the second ran her head into his chest. I followed up, leaping onto his head, causing him to fall to the ground, at which point he started getting kicked in the head, head and balls by all three of us. The uncle had now pulled himself up off the floor and joined his nephew in going at the third man. Malcolm, apparently bored of sitting on his man, had decided to pick him up and carry him outside, not by the door but by the window. He held him over the edge and shouted out for everyone to pay attention, and everyone kind of did. Malcolm announced he'd be dropping the man if his mates didn't fuck off. The men did as they were told and Malcolm dropped their friend anyway and they landed on a balcony floor below. We spent the next few hours fixing up the door, sorting out the cuts and bruises and drinking a strong brown whiskey. That night, Malcolm slept on the floor of the flat. We told the neighbours about what had happened and that the men might be coming back. Most said they'd keep a lookout and lend a hand if they saw anything. It was what you did, you'd looked after each other if you could, even if it was from men with baseball bats. The men had been loan sharks, people praying, people trying to make some pounds by preying on the poverty that had been inflicted upon whole communities up and down the country by a government economic system that we often felt powerless to defend ourselves from. But it was in times like these that I learnt the self-defence from those with more might than you is possible, and that those of us who have lived close to the bottom are the most able to do it. These moments of collective organising and resistance were carried out by people in this country who live on the margins. I've experienced hundreds like them and I can only speculate how many more have occurred across the country in my lifetime. These people, the people involved are pathologised, demonised in mainstream culture as broken people who need to be remade in the image of the good citizen of a capitalist society. I disagree. I think these people and the moments they create need to be the building block upon which we make a better society. I don't know where many of the people I've talked about have ended up. 
I know they will have been fighting against the ongoing attacks of the transnational liber neoliberal process and its servants, and this, this will have caused unbelievable damage to, that, to their hearts and to their minds. Because of this, many may, no longer be able to, many may no longer be able to think or act with the collectivized tendencies of mutual aid, self-defense, and solidarity. Of course, there will be many who can, and who need more people in their corner as they seek to survive emotionally, psychologically, and materially. We are at the back with the hearing. Excellent. Okay, this one's called um, Who's Got Our Backs from Survival to Resistance? Um, the first time I had sex for money, I was 10. And the last time I did it, I was 15. For three years, it was the main source of income in my, in my mother's house, until I got more confident in robbing, robbing people and selling drugs. Whilst my mum was also having sex for money, most of that was either being spent on booze, heroin, or whatever, or whatever the guy turning her out was taking for himself. Because of this, I had to work out a way to make sure I had food, my sisters had food, and we were able to pay for school clothes and the electric meter didn't reach zero every day. It was, my mum who it was my mum who had me do it the first few times. Her mental health deteriorated so drastically in 91 that she often brought men home, not to fuck herself, but to, for me to be fucked by. Sometimes it wasn't clear whether the men knew they were getting an 11-year-old boy instead of a 25-year-old woman, but in the end, it didn't seem to matter much to them. I wasn't a pretty boy, I was a fairly funny-looking kid, just as I'm a fairly funny-looking adult. I only ever washed if I heard someone making fun of me for smelling. All my clothes smelt of cigarette and damp and were often stolen from charity bins. Nor was I a compliant kid, more likely to smack an adult in the face and give them an innocent grin. But I had a high pain threshold and an even greater ability to distance myself from what was happening to me. This type of CV meant that selling my ass for money made a certain amount of sense. And the first time I ran away from home, a few days after my 11th birthday, I met other kids who were doing the same. And once I met them, I decided I wasn't going to give my mum another chance to turn me out. And that I decided how I'd be fucked by, and how I'd be fucked and by who. Social services would visit our house every one or two weeks to check up on us. They made sure my dad or any other man hadn't moved into our flat and that my mum's mental health hadn't made her incapable of taking care of me and my three sisters. The social workers seemed to change on a weekly basis, but I imagine this wasn't true. Merely an indication of how limited their impact was on me. The only ones I really remember were the ones who came over on the came over on the occasions they took us into care, and the ones who would sit with me in police interviews when I got arrested for busting a plank of wood over a pensioner's head, or for driving a stolen car into someone's garden, or whatever other thing I was doing in those days. A sense that other people wouldn't protect you had been driven into my head early on. My mum's family had a strong sense of us against the world. So when we left them behind, I kind of realized that it was now me against the world. And if I got lucky, some people might someday have my back. We moved down to Nottingham. That sense of community disappeared for a while. And it was only when I started turning tricks on the streets in Arboretum, Radford and Mapley that I met people, kids really, who would do that. They weren't friends, they were co-workers. We didn't have each other's back due to liking each other necessarily, but because we knew we were small and that our lives could get very messy very quickly if we didn't look after each other and make it clear that we were going to look after each other. 
Two days after I ran away from home that first time, after spending the first night sleeping underneath a tree at the top of the forest wreck, I tried to rob a man in a wheelchair. I saw him moving for a park alone, and it was dark, so I thought I could handle it. I raced up behind him, holding a small knife, and before I could hold it to him, he'd swung his wheelchair around and slapped me to the ground. I don't really remember what words were spoken, but he managed to have his hands around my neck pretty tightly, pretty quickly. He made it clear that I was going to suck him off or he was going to kill me then and there, and I, have no idea if he, I had no idea if he was someone who was capable of that, as I was a few years away from being able to make that kind of judgement. I found his dick in my mouth and he moved my head, head up and down until he came inside. Once he'd, em once he'd emptied himself, he lifted my head up and drove it against his forehead. The next thing I knew, I saw him on the floor, his wheelchair a good five feet away and three kids a little older than me kicking the crap out of him. I watched this from the floor for a couple of minutes before one of the kids turned around and walked over to me. She offered her hand and helped me up and as she did so, indicated the man on the floor. I think she must have said it, but maybe she didn't. Either way, it was enough for me to understand that I should give the man a few healthy kicks myself. I spent the next week or two with these kids until I was picked up by the police after getting into a fight while carrying a knife. I spent a month in a care home before being released back to my mother. Whilst I stayed living with her for the most part of the next year, I spent most of my nights on the streets, turning tricks and drinking with my new friends. It was never exactly the same kids, but they came from the same pool of about 20, who were essentially self-employed child prostitutes. Without any adult to secure money or protect us from quiet interference, we were wholly responsible for one another's safety. The night where they had intervened on my behalf had been an example of these kids knowing that if a client thought they could get away with it once to one kid, they'd try it on another time, and it was always better to nip it in the bud. There was also a high level of street loyalty. We weren't just looking out for each other, but others who were being turned out by adults and the adult women. We were, we were organised in the simplest of ways. We'd go out in threes and fours, walk the streets and parks within the line of each other. If we picked up, we'd signal how long we expected to be gone by opening and closing our hands, each, each opening being five minutes. We'd take down the reg numbers of our cars. Our co-workers would disappear and, and try to take a good look at the faces of the men, and it was nearly always men. Each week, there would be at least one attempt at beating us on the street. This could come from a parent or a sibling, an adult wanting to take control of the child's earnings, older kids or teenagers who wanted to make some quick money and thought we might have some passing drunks and homeless people and, of course, cops, usually off-duty but not always. A lot of the times, it was the punters who thought they could take advantage of our precarious situation. In each of these situations, whoever was out that night and wasn't being attacked would sprint headfirst, fist boards up, and flailing into the backs and heads of the attacker. <coughs> we were kids fighting adults, and more often than not, all we were successful in doing was distributing the beating more evenly across our group. But from time to time, we got our win, and the punter would, punter would take a beating. The more we did this, the safer we felt, and it seemed less likely we'd be attacked. But we never got ahead of ourselves. Most of us had been collecting severe beatings for a decade from various sources, and we weren't expecting this to stop. We'd also dish out retribution. If one of ours was taken away one night and not being paid or beaten beyond what the verbal contract had allowed, we would find a way to get back. This included setting fire to, setting fire to the client's car parked in their driveway, robbing and vandalising their homes whilst they were at work, sending letters to their workplaces, and calling their homes to speak to their wives and children. Mostly, though, we'd just try and kick their heads in. For sure, we were angry, feckless kids who you probably wouldn't want to bring home to meet your parents, 
and in much of the day-to-day we were hardened and cold individuals who refused to engage with any of the state interventions in our lives. Most of us had experienced care homes, foster care, arrests, court, and none of us enjoyed the times we spent in school. Whether or not the social worker, care worker, foster carer, cop, solicitor or teacher was nice or well meant or meant well had little bearing on how we interacted with them. What we knew was that they were against us. They were against how we were trying to survive and they wanted us to force us into existing in a way that they felt comfortable with. I might look back and think that if we'd engaged, engaged the next, next decades of our lives, let's do that again. I might look back and think that if we'd engaged differently, the next decades of our lives might have led to a more um, easy or rewarding life. But equally, I can look back and think that the lessons I learned and the skill sets I developed have maintained importance. I believe the ability to organise in dangerous circumstances, to be able to communicate effectively in whatever way is easiest, and a willingness to defend the lives of those who are in, whose lives are intrinsic to our own, are fundamentals for effective organising with working class and poor communities. If we were unable to do these things, and for a variety of reasons I find them hard to do now, then the organising we do will be weak and more easily eroded. There's no doubt that those few years have had a serious effect on my mental health. Some of these effects have been positive, though. I'd argue that they were the first trusting relationships of my life, the first period of my life when not only did others say they had my back, but they also put this into practice on a regular basis. I struggle to see how the life I live now with several trusting relationships would have been possible had it not been for those few years. Because not only were they trusting relationships, they were multiracial and pansexual, with individuals whose gender identity was fluid. For someone who spent the first decade of their life in an enclosed white environment, where gender roles were firmly prescribed and sexuality was not for debate, this period of my life was both eye-opening and transformative. It would be disingenuous to suggest that my class consciousness was born here, because that would be doing a disservice to the racist, patriarchal, but anti-rich, anti-government families I come from. But even though it took me decades to begin to connect the dots, it was where my class consciousness developed, and where my anti-oppression views became broader and more subtle, even though I never had the language to articulate it as such. Over the last few years, I've worked closely with a lot of young people from my neighbourhood. Youngsters whose childhoods are dissimilar to mine in many ways, but the, the loyalty they have for each other is, is clear. However, it is drawn along ethnic and racial and gendered lines, just as mine would have been had my experiences come at me as theirs have done to them. Their shared class is often invisible, and when made visible, it is clouded by migration status and xenophobia. This is not at all surprising, as it's been a primary function of state and capital to drive wedges through working class and poor communities using racialised language and anti-immigrant policy and propaganda. It's also a powerful, powerful practice of disguising class identity with consumption and cultural practices. I'm not for a second suggesting these children would benefit from what I went through. After all, they still have the possibility for loving themselves and comprehending their bodies, and they will hopefully find it easy to love those around them and sleep at night. My friends and I were finding ways of surviving on our own terms when we were let down by the adults and the community and the society that had been asked to raise us. Some of us did survive, which was a success of our own making. The kids I've worked with have a different survival. They have to exist in a society which is intent on separating them from one another, in cocooning them in a cultural life in order to keep them from a political life. Most of, them ha most of them have parents and family who are engaged with them. Some of them have other adults who acknowledge their awesomeness and encourage them to question and challenge much of the bullshit they see around them. They are unsurprisingly conscious of a lot of this bullshit, 
whether it be understanding capitalism's materialism due to the religious teachings they've had or the anti-authoritarian due to their interactions with school and police, or their understandings of Britain and imperialism due to their family's heritage. I suppose I think it's the responsibility of any organiser from a working class or poor background to support young people in connecting these observations to one another and offering toolkits to make further, general, further connected observations within their own lives. This process is obviously a long one. It took me 15 to 20 years to really start to understand and articulate any of it in much depth. And even now I struggle with making those connections and seeing the depth of the problem on a daily basis. These young people live in a context where resistance to white supremacist capitalist patriarchy appears ever more futile, particularly as it uses its media and culture to normalise itself and delegitimise any opposition. We, as poor and working class people, are forced by society's structures and institutions into periods of time where survival is all that matters. These periods of time can last weeks, months, years and decades. But within these periods, our strengths come to the fore. Our ability to engage with our own lives rises. The, those lives become not just something to be trudged through normally, but something in which, which we can embrace. And so our commitment to our, and as this happens, so our commitment to our own lives increases. And when the survival becomes deeply entwined with the lives of others, our commitment to our collective life increases. And our power to defend ourselves and choose how we think and act develops. It's only when the collective exists and is strong that we're able to do more than survive. As children working in the sex industry, we were, we were never able to become strong. Our bodies were too frail and our minds undeveloped. With no support and no transferable capital, we were only able to survive. Now, as an adult who has experienced poverty, who has had to survive and, and now has sufficient tra transferable capital to make my own decisions about my life, I seek others who dream of working for a collective future one in which we are not forced into these positions by society, but instead tear its structures and institutions down in order to create something truer and more fucking awesome in its place. Thanks. Um, questions? Did that noise come out? <laughs> <laughs> Questions if you've got any, or comments, or just speak. <laughs> like the Quaker circle, just if the. <laughs> this is awkward. <laughs> <laughs> So. Yeah, I haven't got a question, but um, I don't know if enjoyed is the right word, but you know, it's very well written and yeah, I've been into the book, which is those, that was just two chapters. Yeah. 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 Which chapters were the first one? And uh, survival um, to Resistance, I think it's about page 70. I can't remember. It's like right, fifth so or sixth right, chapter. Right. Yeah. Yeah, powerful stuff. Really, really good. How long did it take you to write, write that? You were saying you were doing it on Facebook. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's basically right. But a lot of them, I think, it, yeah, maybe 10, 11 first appeared on Facebook as ranty posts. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it's, yeah, the editing process was about um, off and on for a year or so. Yeah. Yeah. And where does it, where does it, where does it end? Where, where, 
the last word is, and Pete said. <laughs> um, no, I mean it is. It's not in. It's not chronological. Um, um, and I don't think anything in there occurred at a period after 2016. I think it's all 2016. So it doesn't have Dom left Nottingham and moved to somewhere else. It doesn't have that in it at all before then. I'm not. I'm not saying bits. Uh, uh, North East Lancashire. <laughs> about tearing down structures and building something more awesome like what's your view of what that would look like well that's a small question <laughs> <laughs> should fill the next 10 minutes yeah oh man Jesus Christ um very general yeah it's something I think about a lot and I guess part of me is like reluctance to engage with it even in my own head too much simply because whatever that would be is something that's collectively developed rather than something that solely is like this is my utopia let's move towards it it would however look um something like more loads lots and lots of very autonomous autonomous communities of you know i guess 500 to 2000 people um which are and all these communities interconnected um, uh, yeah, whatever their resources sharing them with other communities, but focusing their, their governing structure or the organising structure would only number X amount of people, um, and they would not be filled with uh, forty-hour weeks, and um, we would not be selling our labour for coins. Um, yeah, when we the, on a wider level, you know. Private the abolishment of private property, uh, which is not the same as no one has their own personal things. You can still have your own underpants, you don't have to share them or whatever. Um, it seems to confuse a lot of people. Um, yeah, uh, the abolishment of the all, all states as institutions, um, like there are better ways for us as people to organize ourselves. I think. Um, you know, there were people in Mexico, there were people in uh, northern Syria um, doing that, these things already. And that's, you know, West Westphalian and Treaty was, what, uh, 1600 or something, right before then, states didn't exist. We didn't do that. We had kingdoms, but um, they were not these all-knowing, all-powerful bureaucracies that were embedded in within our lives. Um, we'd find different ways to arrange... Uh, Organised justice, like the prison industrial complex, would not exist. We'd find like different ways to like um, understand certain behaviours and engage with certain behaviours and certain actions. And when we do this together, um, it would be long, um, long processes. Uh, but I feel like they're the kind of processes that would make us the most of ourselves and most of each other, um, and get to a point where we can. Yeah, get in future generations where people are able to connect, understand that we are, to, you know, to get, I'm not going to get hippie, now, I'm not going to say that. Uh, <laughs> but like, we are so distant from each other in ways that we shouldn't be, like, for various reasons. Um, yeah, 
something like that. Yeah. It's really vague in it. Oh, this hand's amazing. Um, I don't know who put the hand up first. Um, so you've, you can fight it out. The guy behind. Yeah, so I think you reference like how these experiences play into the hard left organizing that you've done. Um, I wonder if you, could, if you could just talk about like a or a few specific examples of like how those are related or how you see those for having related. So you say the question again. Sorry. Um, if I need so to give myself more time to think about the answer. <laughs> I think you made a reference to how like the stuff that you talked about plays into the hard work organizing that you've done. And I was just wondering if you could give an example or a few examples of that. Sure. Um, I, yeah. So I'll start off by saying, like, I, I don't know where everyone comes from in this room, but I imagine there'll be a few of you who have been involved in um, anarchisty organising, for want of a better fro fro phrase. Um, maybe there isn't. Maybe I'm just talking to myself. Um, but I guess when people move into that, and maybe into any, any uh, left ideology or left position, you're confronted or given a, a, a roadmap through um, and toolkits through certain languages. And like when I decided to move in, was in anarchist circles, mutual aid, solidarity, and self defense were like huge ones, um, the main ones. Um, I mean, there's another digression I almost went on, but no, I won't do that. Um, and I could recognize them so quickly. So I because of the, my previous experience so i assumed that they would be there like my previous there would be overlap um and you know in the book i talk about like my own failings in all of this quite a bit and i guess we can get we can engage with that now it's like so i moved into that and then started being introduced to direct action the way certain um hard left do it um and there was a this huge disconnect it was like most, you know, in the people who I was working with, and some of them, you know, most of them were lovely people, a few were dickheads, but most were lovely people, some are still friends, um, came from a very different experience to mine. And myself and them failed massively to think about ways in which it's not just like a niche little group of people who've had a certain, very similar experience, that it's broader, that it's actually connected to the lived experiences of the geographical community we were living in. Um, so, I think, I mean, you know, I don't know, I call them the shibboleths, but you can call them what you like, but like, no borders, earth first, um, smash the prison, blah, 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 the catchphrases. When you're organising around those things, they are, like, the first part of course should be, how, how do we engage with them with the people who are living side by side with us? That wasn't the case. It was like, it was very vanguardist. It was like, let's go straight to the end, end resort. If you're not with us, you're against us. Like, again, I was as guilty of this as anyone else. It's like, we've got the answers. We're going straight to the front. We're presenting this. Come. And if you don't, you're a fool. You're wrong. You need to, like, get with the program. Um, and, it, like, when you're doing that and you're talking to someone who um, is in an economic position where they're incredibly vulnerable, even slightly vulnerable, definitely precarious, whether, you know, having to provide for X, Y, and Z, you're the, you're the one who's in the wrong way. <laughs> like, they're lived, they, they, already, they are already taking direct action over their lives in different ways in order to get, um, maintain their survival. And, I, like, I'm annoyed with myself because I didn't recognise that because that's where I came from. And, but was able to connect the dots. It took me, you know, several years to do that. Um... And there's lots of lip service about it, and there still is. Um, 
I'm trying to, I don't want to give like lived real examples because I don't want to start dissing people. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's not really fair. But um, <laughs> no, I still need to sell my book to them. So. <laughs> um, so you'll have people doing a single issue campaign, whatever that might be, um, and they'll someone will give him a critique saying this is you, sh you know you're bringing in. Um, the social structure oppression, going, it's against this, it's against that, um, the way you're doing it. And very quickly afterwards, they will adopt that language. They'll take that language and use it and to defend themselves. They'll go, oh, we are anti-oppressive in X, Y, and Z ways, but that's not built into their politics. So you'll have, I don't know, uh, a prison campaign. This, see, I can't think of an exact example of some prison campaign doing this. I'm sure they do, but I can't think of one. They'll take an anti-prison campaign and Someone will say it's all middle class white folk. Um, and then six months later, they will be pushing or using the language of anti uh, racism um, anti and working classness within that. But their, their methodology will not have changed a bit. Um, and that kind of process is applicable to a lot of other places, a lot of other organising groups I've seen in this country over the last decade or so. Is that an answer to your question in a really roundabout way? Excellent. He's nodding, by the way. <laughs> um, yeah, then here. Do you still have your hand up, or have you changed your mind? Were any of them yours? Purple. Purple. Favorite color. <laughs> Okay, so just to clarify the questions, did coming into the anarchist setting give me the sociological structural? Yeah, um, I don't think so, no. Um, so again, this is covered in the book, which is 10 pounds over there. Uh, it's, it's, like, it's, a seven, it's, like, it's like seven out of 10, it's not bad. Um, there are actually better books on those shelves, but ignore them. Um, so, um, I st a few years before I started meeting people who would identify themselves as anarchists, um, I learned to read. Um, and the process of me learning to read um, was the process of giving that language to the thoughts I'd maybe not had, but definitely the, um, the experiences that I'd been, they'd come about. It's like it started to connect the dots. So the first books I read was Spot the Dog. Um, I'm sure it was John Grisham, but I've been told it wasn't. But it's a crime novel, and Antonio Gramsci's Prison Notebooks, which I don't know if you've read those three in conjunction with one another, but not, <laughs> they're not similar. Um, so I was like sitting in a psychiatric ward, re um, like phonetically saying out the words in Prison Notebooks, very, very fucking slowly, which. I don't know why they didn't keep me for longer. <laughs> um, but it started to, like, it connected with some of the thoughts I was having. And, like, over time, my reading improved. And I 
kind of went on a like food books and just like consumed that and that gave me that connected all this and gave me a language to it um and i came across people who were organizing in a very liberal way around lgbt issues and i worked with them for a bit and i started doing prison visits um and then i went to uni for a bit and through the uni first year of uni i came across uh people who identified themselves as anarchists and it all started to come together i think for a little bit i was quite cynical but it was like oh here's some people who were doing the things that make sense in my head even if it wasn't ideal and even if that process was then another learning process of understanding that, that what for me was not um was off off base which but it didn't it seemed appropriate action at the time and now over time i've realized it it wasn't um for multiple reasons um and only yeah only in the last few years have i started maybe four or five years i've started to like connect my past experiences the political maybe the political practice in some ways came from the anarchist setting a lot of political practice um and the language that i'd experienced within i guess academia but mainly just reading brought bringing them together over the last few years and i imagine in, ten, in five ten years time some other things will have happened and it will have shifted against or I've under, i'll get a deeper understanding of some things um as i mentioned numerous times in the book which is 10 pounds and i over there uh like um I, st I still have so much I, I feel like all of us need to do a lot of internal work to unpick uh um the way unpick the way we've internalized oppressive structures and i'm no different like the gender and racial um racial stuff i've got so much work to do but it doesn't doesn't mean i can i have to stop doing anything or like participating it just means i have to be working doubly hard because this needs to be get get done at the same time and i also need to be able to listen to people when they tell me i've made mistakes regarding that stuff um so yeah is that an answer or did i start answering other questions <laughs> um keys over there yeah um i was just wondering um what uh if, if anything you think of um kind of identity politics and how that relates to kind of class politics because um a lot of the language you use feels like very kind of engaged with that, um, quite sensitive to that. Um, but then also, I was reading uh, Darren McGarvey's book, and in that he, um, he sort of identifies identity politics as being some kind of a part of like the kind of vanguardist, almost kind of condescending kind of stuff that you, you talked about earlier. Um, so I was kind of wondering mm -hmm. what you think about that. <laughs> <laughs> that, that question gets asked at everyone and each time i think I, no no it's fine it's great like that's no it's a really important question um but i feel like each time i'm like part of me is like i'm not the right person to answer that <laughs> even if you, you prefaced it with what do you think i was like no i shouldn't be able to let, shouldn't be allowed to think um <laughs> so i think one of the problems with the discourse around identity politics at the moment is with especially a lot of us who emphasize class um is that we um pull all put all identity politics under one bracket and that's entirely inappropriate but it, there is a form of liberal identity politics um which is based around um rep representation rather than liberation i have limited time for that 
Um, I'm not like I can. Yeah, I get. Guess for me, it's like I cannot stop someone who is uh, marginalised in a way that I can never experience. I'm not going to say you should not be able to define yourself. You sh like that should not be an emphasis. I can't say that. I just find it does not fit in. It's not. It mean it means we get things like, oh, we've got enough female MPs. But it means we've oh, we've got enough people of colour on television. Like these are not my goals. I don't really care who's on television, um, or who my MPs are. Um, you know, they've all got their problems. Um, but when we. But I don't think class is just about economic structures either. Like from it, from the inception of capitalism, like the way we the way the working class has been stratified has been on a long gendered and racial lens. Lens. <laughs> um, like, and if people who emphasise class cannot recognise that, it means they do not know the history of capitalism. It means they do not understand how class formations have occurred in this country and globally. Like, there would be no capitalism, there would be no UK in the situation it's in now. I don't mean fucking Brexit, I mean as one of the richest countries in the world, if it was not for slavery. And if we can't, like, embed that within the politics we already have, we need to step back and come up with new politics. And it's the same goes, like, the, literally the first way we were stratified as a working class in this country was along gender lines. Like, you know, women are now working at home. You'd be, like, uh, men are coming to the, go to the factories, women go at home. Your labour is no longer waged. Like your job is to like for social reproduction. Like so, so these things, like gender and racial issues, are in deeply embedded within class structures, and we need to get a hand on that. The other aspect for me is like um, within this country, half the people living in poverty, at least, are women. Um, unreal, like um, what's, what's the phrase? The percent, the proportional per percentage of people of colour is over, they're overwhelmingly represented in the, in the working class in the, and in the poorest portions of the working class. Same with tra um, trans folk. Like these things are within this, this class analysis and they need to be kept there and we need to f like make sure we do not forget that. The cla working class, um, underclass is not flat cap guy who works in the factory for shitty labour and he's a, you know, as white as me. Um, like we need to get out of that. Um, I think a lot of people are resistant to it, um, and it's one of those things that's fucking up social movements in this country. Um, that does not, again, that does not mean that um, the colour of someone or the gender of someone means that they are the people who should lead social, radical social movements. Um, it just means that their experiences are going to be far more useful if we can think about them and engage with Think about how they connect to the social structures, if that makes sense. <laughs> um, in case it's not incredibly apparent, public speaking is not something I enjoy, um, and I am still shitting myself. <laughs> but yes, any more questions? <laughs> Please do, I mean, I'm here now. <laughs> oh, yes. institutions and the, the kind of there's been like recent like rioting recently or whatever um because they've kind of changed the rules that you're not allowed to keep or, or like isolation is no longer kind of a, a a way that they can punish people i was kind of wondering if what your reflections on that were or because kind of, that's something kind of that's new to my politics it's like 
is a kind of starting to learn about about prisons and, and things like that, and kind of reflecting on that and trying to work out my thinking on that. So I was kind of wondering what your perspective was. Perspective on that specific. On kind of in- incidences like that and how how youth prison institutions kind of operate and the kind of problems that they create. Yeah. Okay. Um, nice small question. I know, sorry. Yeah, it's all right. Um, so, uh, I do not think youth prisons are a good thing. That's a nice good baseline. <laughs> um, I, um, we seem to be walking, possibly sleepwalking, into um, a situation where the school to prison pipeline is no longer secondary school um, to um, prison, but from primary school into young offenders institutions. Um, there are young people I know um, who, you know, 9, 10, 11, 12 were getting nicked and getting um, positioned in a situated by both school social services and prison and the police into a situation where they were going to end up in a young offenders institution like how that is the appropriate way to deal with the um trauma that young person is experiencing how that isn't appropriate i have no idea um other than that it i'm going to say this each time I've, the two times i've said it so far I've had really weird conversations in these meetings, but let's see how it goes. Uh, these kids do not matter. I did not matter. My peers did not matter. 20 years ago, my, my dad, piece of shit that he is, did not matter. His granddad did not matter. My mum did not matter. These people do not matter to this society at all. The, um, the only way in which they are given any thought is as a really good tool to go do not become like this we are not we as a society are not scared of tossing people aside um so you need to behave yourselves that's the only the only use for us um and to me once whenever i remember that it's a lot easier to understand why kids are getting thrown in prison <laughs> why we think like even in schools why um isolation booths have a good idea because who gives a shit like this system doesn't um they are not going to be useful workers because there will be no work which they can do. There, there, needs to be, there always needs to be an underclass within capitalism um, just as a threat to everyone else. And that underclass will get bigger. Like, it's gonna be... Um, I would love, Jer- you know, Jeremy Corbyn seems like a sweet, sweet man. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really hope Labour win the next election. And I hope we t- this country turns into the socialist hippie utopia that he dreams of mm. like that would be ideal like um you know i've got friends who've got kids that's a wonderful place for them to be raised um i suspect it might be harder i suspect that that won't happen um and that we'll carry on this really violent trajectory that we're on and we slowly eat each other unless we do something about it part of that process is to keep from is to keep putting people in prison they, like it's expanding, it's becoming privatised. It it will now be, it will cost there are men and women in this country who it will cost millions of pounds if we stop sending people to prison. Like it's been that way in the states for quite some time. It's been that way in other European countries for quite some time. It's coming. It's 
and it's probably here now. Like I haven't read into it in the last few years enough. Um, exactly who owns what and how much of it is privatised. But um, as soon as like throwing someone in prison becomes a profitable enterprise, you're on a downward trajectory. Um, as soon as it becomes profitable to put a 12-year-old in an isolation booth in a youth detention centre that is 50 miles from where they were, their family are, and that's a profitable, profitable thing, we've got problems. Like People get paid to make these isolation booths in prisons, never mind the ones in schools. Um, yeah. <laughs> I didn't mean to go that far. Uh, but yeah, um, I... And the other, yeah, I guess the other, other point in that is, unlike organising or supporting organising from the outside are in adult prisons, which is possible, and um, yeah, goes on. It's really hard to do with young offenders' prisons because the state have got all these devices in place to protect the welfare of the children. Mm. <laughs> um, and yeah, I don't. It's really hard to see past that. It's really hard to work past that other than trying to do the work outside the prisons in your communities with the young people coming through. Um, and that's made harder and harder because there's climates of fear um, around adults who want the kids' parents or kids' family spending time with those kids because um, for various reasons. Um, and there's no funding for it and it's like it's hard work. Um, yeah. Ask me a happy question. <laughs> <laughs> Don't ask me a happy question. Yeah, I, I may have one, happy, hey. hopefully. Uh, how would you help uh, people who are not socially and politically aware to become one? You mean, uh, you mean like Leninists? <laughs> uh, well, people who are who live on the streets and uh, who may not be interested as much in society and politics as, uh, for example, you are or people in this room. How would you help them to? I'll become more engaged. Um, so I think that I'd have to be incredibly sure that they weren't engaged and that I wasn't mistaking them not being engaged in the same way I am to them not being engaged. Like, um, yeah, so let me think about a way to talk about this. Um, okay, so when I was writing the book, I um, was working in a, in a registered care home for people with psychiatric health issues. And a lot of the time it felt like quite half the staff were just, you know, didn't want to engage, didn't want to talk about stuff. Um, because Not necessarily because I was trying to start conversations, but other people would like, oh, I read this. And other people would like, oh, not politics. And I'd be like, oh, it's really depressing. No one wants to talk about, you know, the world around us. Um, but it became apparent through conversation and through not projecting my own stuff that the politics they were engaged in was um, survival within their families, subsistence within their families, um, taking care of their neighbours, building community within a very small locations. Like they did not have time for, to like um, write a big lengthy propaganda sheet or like hold a banner outside Marks and Spencer's for like poor hummus. Like, they, what they had time for was to have a, um, t to develop a sense of community and shared 
um, understanding of the experiences that they were going through. So they, they had a deep comprehension of um, the, their working conditions and the way their labour was being exploited. Um, and, the same, and the same would go through their families and friends and their neighbours. Uh, but it took a while for that to come out because they don't, just didn't want to shout about it. They just understood it and they had to get on with it. And their political actions came about, like, was it sometimes within church settings? Like, I think we, as an atheist myself, even though I've got a strange relationship with the Catholic Church, it's like, forget that there, there are, there's lots of political learnings that happen within religious settings, even if there's lots of poisonous aspects as well. Pe yeah, people have different ways of expressing the politics. So I guess in answer to your question, I would have to be really sure. Um, and if I felt like you're just disengaged from everything, and to be honest, that is far more likely with economically secure people, white economically secure people, um, then And I felt, if I, and, <laughs> what do you say? I said, my God, that looks really serious. Yeah, that's fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's all right, Paul. Thank you. Yeah, I'll, I'll get your book and uh, I'll try to read between the lines as well. Yeah, yeah thank excellent. You. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Anna. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I will go back to that. Um, so, yeah, it's about, for me, because, and for anyone I imagine, we have limited time and we have limited um, capacity to try and create the political changes that we want to change. If you come across, if I come across someone who is that way inclined already um, and like has that economic security, I'm not going to bother. If I do really feel like some, like, I'm struck by lightning and I go, oh yeah, I should really go for this, <laughs> I'm going to listen to them. I'm going to listen to them really, ask them lots of questions and listen really hard to what they're saying because I find, even in that situation, I find it really hard that there's no political engagement going on. It's just like beneath a cloud of whatever it is, microwaves and washing up liquid, or whatever it is people coat their lives with. It's definitely not those things, but... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I, th I feel like all, all political engagement comes from one to starts with one-to-one -one conversations and starts <coughs> with, like, a lot of fucking listening. It, um, and I don't feel like I have a political position which I won't necessarily want, apart from... Well, some stuff, but a political position that is as rich and full as it needs to be to feel like I need to sit someone down and tell them how to be or what to think about. Like, I want them to get there themselves, otherwise, it's meaningless. Um, that's an answer. Have you ever had to deal with like, do that? Like, or have you ever found yourself in a situation where you did that? Um, not with someone who's a complete blank slate. Um, I've done that with people who. Um, have right-leaning tendencies, um, people who voted, not like hard right, not like, um, yeah, like people who've gone, oh yeah, I used to vote for you, Kip, he seems all right, um, oh, migration's a bit of an issue, I don't really know, like, because people like that, like, it's my responsibility to, as a white man to engage with those people, 
because no one else should be fucking doing it. Like, it should not be the people who are, like, subject to ideas like that. Um, like, that person's thought process is not going to fucking hurt me. It's, you know, slight disappointment maybe, but it's not going to... So I have responsibility to listen to them, where they're coming from. Like, we ha had a conversation about um, the far right, uh, the Reading one, and, like, I want to make it perfectly clear. If the far right are on the streets, it is physical, physical confrontation until they have left the streets. For me, that's end of. But outside of that, in the communities, in the workplaces, not all people who go on far right demonstrations um, have entirely right, far right views. It's far more fucking nuanced than that. And it's, it's important to go into those, be, be parts of those communities, be parts of those workplaces where you can listen and help, yeah, help support that person unpick how they've got from A to B, because it's been a process. Like they've been, you know, quite often it's a um, thing. It's all the only culture or information they, um, has been mainstream, and mainstream news, and mainstream culture is a white supremacist culture. It's, it's white supremacist news. It feeds UKIP. It feeds EDL. The idea that they're against, the idea is that the, the, the new news is balanced in that way. It's nonsense. It perpetuates that shit. So yeah, um, hard listening. And then if they're on the streets, you beat them up. <laughs> <laughs> well, you try. I'm quite small. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's so yes, I have had been in that situation, um, and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't because limited time, limited capacity, um, and it is hard work. But all of this, it's gonna be hard work. Um, so obviously, as you're saying, like we really need massive kind of structural change to have like any really meaningful effect. Um, but do you see anything now that's happening, or that you've been involved in, that has had a, a really positive impact on kind of people from your background or similar background to yourself? Um. I don't think there are many um, things that come from any spectrum of the left um, from uh, I guess I just about yeah you know the the labor of uh, Corbyn from, I could say that's the point of left everything there everything that's come from there to Maybe not the nihilists, but like the insurrectionists say, or that there's potential with all of it to do good stuff. Like the new people, they're not. There isn't a complete waste of time going on. It's just like, just some things just aren't being done, um, aren't being fought through hard enough. Um, and it's, I mean, you know, I like the sisters uncut stuff, but I've seen it from a distance. Lots of the acorn stuff seems really sound, but I've seen it from a distance. Um, and like you know, unless you're on the ground, you never can never be able to get a full idea. Uh, there were definitely experiences I had when I was in Calais that were positive. At Del Farm, there were positive things going on. There was a lot of shit stuff going on, but there were lots of positives. It's like um, so these things can happen in those spaces. Um, there are I've come across through conversation and through visiting on this tour, come across like small projects that are doing slow work around some of this stuff um which isn't definitely i think the people participating would identify criticisms quickly than i would of like 
things I have to work on, but things like, yeah, there's a lot of good stuff going on, but um, is it touching the communities that I am from? I don't think so very much. Um, and, more, and the other way around, um, when people from my community, or people with, from my experiences, come into the spaces that my current community creates, there is still resistance to them. There is still like a load, it going both ways. Like, there's a lot of fucking tension when someone who, uh, carry, say, carries prison on them when they walk into a room. <laughs> when, you know, your general uh, lefty activist does not respond that well to that because they don't, they don't understand where the te what the tension is. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, the positive bit, there's loads of potential. Um, and there's loads of people um, who are start, who are thinking really hard about this, and people, and I definitely say that the people thinking about this far harder and far clearer and far better than me. Um, yeah. Um, yes. So, would you do you want to take any more questions, or do you have any last question now? Or? Sure. Yeah. Unless, unless like yeah. I mean, I'm not gonna, you know. I feel like it would be. Could it? <laughs> I mean, let's not test that, but. <laughs> I mean, as far as I'm concerned, I'm okay for a bit longer. I mean, I will wrap it up if I'm really feeling it. But at the moment, this is like, this is fine, I'm fine. If people, people should feel free to leave, but buy a book, they're 10 pounds. <laughs> uh, but maybe, maybe there's no more questions anyway, because I can't see any hands up. Well, no, there is. <laughs> I don't mind. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know if it's a good question at all, really. It's about um, your early life, and I'm just wondering your experience of being a child um, sex worker, whether you had an impulse ever to work with, you know, work with um, child sex workers in any organisation, or when you have worked with um, children or young people in a voluntary or work capacity, whether you've had any. Uh, things have brought things up for you and you felt a kind of protectiveness or kind of thing. I'm just wondering that. Okay. Um, first bit, uh, no, I wouldn't want to work for any organisation that works with child sex workers. I'm not mentally strong enough to do that. I don't have that. That yeah. would do, wouldn't be healthy for me. Um, no, I'm, yeah, I, just, I don't feel like that's because I was a child sex worker. It's just because I've got a lot of mental health problems. Um, as for the work... Um, with young people that I was doing for a while. Yeah, stuff, stuff was coming up on a daily basis, not necessarily around that, um, but um, around different levels of, of kind of like protect anonymity because you know some of them, uh, or people in this room will know some of them. Um, so I've got to be careful what words I use. Um, there were definitely issues that came up which um, rang bells and yeah. meant I had to find ways to cope with that and think about that and some of them there was one or two one or two where it was like possible to engage in some way um and some where it wasn't and yeah they were more difficult i suppose like um yeah there was some D um dv stuff that we were able to engage with a little bit and then there was some other stuff that was like out of our wheelhouse because uh, what we, because obviously not everyone here knows what the hell I'm talking about. Uh, uh, we set up a, a youth project based out of a social centre in Nottingham, which worked with uh, 
kids who like to play on the street and hang out on the street, um, trying to give them somewhere to be, also some people to listen to. Um, and yeah, you tended to get uh, kids who maybe did not want to be at home. Not necessarily all of them are that way, but certainly some of them. Um, yeah, that's a tricky one because I'm not, <laughs> haven't, um, oh yeah, just done a yeah. protect their anonymity a little bit. <laughs> Yes, now. Oh, yeah. I was you know, you were saying um, in the second chapter about your experiences with social workers and it felt like a roster of just changing people each mm-hmm. time. And I don't know, like you say, when you reflect on it, part of you feels like you learned a lot of lessons from the way things went from that point and part of you wonders what could have been different. How, is there anything that you would have liked social services to do differently to actually have tried to engage you or the people that you with better when you look back? Um, I think the at that. I think once in Nottingham, I think the only thing I wanted them to do was to engage with, maybe not the structural, but the not the macro level stuff, but and didn't want them to handle deal with them, like the micro level, but like the meso level stuff. I wanted them to make schools not stupid. Uh, I wanted my community to not to be one that had a lot of violence and a lot of anger going on, um, which I guess meant I wanted them to deal with the macro stuff, but I just didn't have the language for it. Um, it was I didn't want them to necessarily to deal with me. Um, like I think I probably went around with um, the only my only problem is people keep trying to interfere interfere with my life, um, whether it be. Um, state administrators or be adults on the streets or whatever. Um, I wanted to be left alone to work through whatever was going on in my life to my own devices with my mates and with my community who I trusted or parts of the community that I trusted. Um, I can't imagine a social worker like really like engaging me and that lasting more than that, that, that meaning anything to me. I think that, yeah, for reasons that some of which are spelled out in the book, I was probably a little bit past that. Um, yeah, I'm, it's because I'm writing the second one. I've started writing the second one, the follow up to this, um, and writing something quite on that um, of like how through multiple interactions with traumatic experience. Um, trust breaks down which isn't like a revolutionary concept but I like try and analyse how that occurred to me in parallel with how it occurred to people who traumatised me so like the processes the similar processes that they went through um, yeah but that's you won't get to read that for a long time if you even want to because that sounds horrific <laughs> 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 uh, <coughs> Oh, uh, yeah, in terms of like, I think following on from that a little bit, not that it has to be too technical and you have to have too technical solution, but like, in terms of the kind of distinction you make between kind of this kind of being an underclass versus working class, I suppose, are there policy solutions that you'd see as like useful specifically for like the kind of more underclass that you identify as distinct from like just the useful for working class? 
Sorry. You're going to have to start that again. Sorry. Sorry. Um, Sorry. In, in like distinct between kind of working class as a broader category, I suppose, that you've mm. identified versus like underclass or chouse in that way of like being more of a kind of subclass within that. Um, are there policies which you'd say like immediately stand out to you as like useful for specifically the kind of underclass dimension of that? No. <laughs> okay, so what I. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the things I regret not putting in this book, or no, start off is one of the things I regret about putting in this book is the term middle class. I'm, I'm thinking of never using the term again, except when I'm speaking about it like in this way. But instead, of just use the phrase class traitors. Um, <laughs> like they, they, um, I'm not sure if I'm definitely going to go this direction, but it's how I've been thinking the last few weeks. Like, and this goes for this stuff, the child underclass thing as well. There is a working class it, and like, I'm just, maybe just go with like Marx's definition and stick with that because that puts most of us on one side and we have more of a chance. But what needs to go on within that is like um, an understanding that we are one side. Like there's loads of cause for unity, but there's no effort to deal with the stratification of that working class. It's like, I don't understand how, and this is nothing against teachers union, uh, it's going to sound like there is, but it really isn't. <laughs> oh no, god damn it, I, forgot, I can't diss this teacher union, let's pick up another one. <laughs> so, I wasn't thinking about that. Um, let's think of another one. Oh yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, so the idea that there is no difference between. Um, Teachers, people who are working, who are existing in the teachers' union, and uh, someone who comes from my experience, that we are all in the same boat together, is clearly nonsense. Like at the reward levels, your the prize money for existing capitalism is really different, and your social and cultural experiences are really different, um, and your access to resources is really different. We need to find ways to like. Sh redistribute those resources. The resources we have already, yes, the big goal is to seize the factories, seize the mode of production, but we're not in a position to do that because we're fucking broken to pieces. And we need to find a way to rebuild ourselves, like both on like levels of trust and uh, emotional bonds and all that business uh, on a one-to-one -one personal level, but also in it like how we organize ourselves, how we organize the resources we have. Um, there needs to be a lot of thought um, about that because if you're if someone's saying I'm a communist and I'm also a doctor, um, then I want to see that person living communism. I want them to like all the resources they have access to. I want them to communalize them because <laughs> if they're not doing that, they are not those things. They are just someone who's like you know probably working horrible hours, like doing a very serious job in a very like demanding circumstances but they are getting well rewarded for it not all of them i mean i know there's different gps i mean gps fuck them uh, <laughs> it's like fucking three weeks to get an ear appointment <laughs> but i mean you can, you can see what i'm saying like yeah. and it's like within us like within little anarchist spheres as well it's just like we come from different experiences um and so I ran a class workshop in Scotland uh, spring last year. Uh, me and a, a couple of others did it, and we broke. We got them to do big, long uh, spectrum, yeah, spectrum line, and working out where they were positioning themselves class-wise, like where they, where they come from. And I volunteered to facilitate the top group. Sat down with them, um, and first question they ask: Okay, how much money have you got? 
um, on you. Um, and I said that, and I said, okay, how much money do you have access to? Like within three or four days. Um, and it was well over a million pounds. Um, and these are people, some of them, like who would be considered comrades or would be considered like people of the same political persuasion. And they have access to all this and they are not using it. And I'm like, a, a small fraction of that, five grand, changes my neighbor's life. Like, pays their bills for a year, gives them, like, gives them more space and time to think about the rest of their lives. It gives them a bit of control. But it's sitting in your bank account and queuing interest. Um, like, fair play for the, to the five of them for admitting all that. And then, you know, then there was another level, like, okay, in, um, what did I say, was it five years, how much money do you have access to? <sighs> yeah, I mean, and it, but it was still like, on the grand scheme of things, you know, compared to, a f you know, wealthy people like a football, a sports person's wage, it's still small, small potatoes, but it's still significant, it's, it's life-changing money. And if that's within my, it's, if that's within the social movement I'm part of, and we're only doing the things that we are doing, which is, you know, poorly thought out direct action and parades and, I don't know, people's kitchen. And then, then it makes me lose a lot of uh, trust and patience with those movements. Um, like, you know, I've spent a lot of my time doing fundraisers at the social centre in Nottingham so I could pay for, like, you know, raise £60 to take the local kids on a trip. And someone who, well, yeah, people who are connected to that community have all this money. And they're sitting on it. It's like, why the fuck am I spending seven hours cooking lentil dal or whatever the fuck I was trying to cook? I hardly ever did lentil dal. It was more like bangers and mash. But still, the point stands. Like, yeah, and... I try not to think just within that, you know, anarchist milieu, but the broader left, because there's so much more. We have, like, we have resources, and we're using them so badly, um, or not using them, they're just sitting there, um, or people are individualising them. And, like, this, as well as unpicking, like, our racism, unpicking our sexism, unpicking our transphobia, picking our classism, we need to unpick our relationship with money. We need to unpick this concept that we have that we deserve it because that is a lesson that's been taught to us by capitalism. And until we do, we're not going to be able to like build the revolutionary movements we want to live and we want to have because we still think that it's mine. These are my things. I'm earning them. Um, and if so, maybe I'm going, to, I'm going to judge someone else for not being able to do that the same as I'm able to do. Like I'm a white, able-bodied man living in one of the richest countries in the world. I am able to do a lot of fucking things um, and have a lot of like. Uh, I've got a long, long chain in my cage. Um, and there are people who live in this country who do not have as long, long a cage. I need to be accessing the resources I can access and redistribute them. And everyone who's part of the same movements I am, I expect the same from them. What was the question? <laughs> Is it connected? Or I just go off on one. I just black out occasionally. Oh, as a teacher's thing. That's so like a guy. <laughs> I mean, I, I was just using them as a, a group of people whose access to resources is at one end of the spectrum. Yeah. I mean, it, it's the same for all of us, but they are one end compared to, say, the people from the communities that I'm from. Um, there are loads of others I could have picked on. It's just, as far as unions were concerned, the teachers would. 
basically, there's a, Union, not the actual citizens. Both. It's all of us. Like each as individuals and as organisations, we're part of. Like I think we should be unpicking the ideology within ourselves, and then within the community, the organisations we're working with, or the groups we're working with, collectivise and trying to come up with collective responses to all this. Uh, is that a hand or are you waving? <laughs> Good. Stop and be mounting. What? Yeah. What? In what ways can we start unpicking things? Like on an individual level, and then on the collective. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, I learn. I mean, quite a lot of the time, I learn by doing or learn by reading. Um, so I learn by doing, um, trying, trying to think of li as little as possible. As when you know, when I go off, when I do a shift, if I do, haven't done one for a while, but when I've done care shifts, the, the 40, 50 pounds that I get for the eight, nine hours. Try and think of as little of that as mine as I can. <laughs> like I need to keep some to pay, keep the roof over, but go okay that bit, that twenty pounds, thirty pounds, that's not mine. That's gonna feed into any collective I'm within. Um, which like I'm like no fuck that, that's mine. Like, that was a shit shift. I hate doing it. Like um, like I'm bringing in you know I get a little bit of cash for the book, and it's like really is it not mine? <laughs> <laughs> This is tense. Um, <laughs> like, cause it's really, like, it is lodged in us. Um, but I think, you know, for me, it's about like <coughs> reminding myself that this is a reward for staying quiet. That's all this is. That this is hush money. Like, people are dying. People are being killed, and I'm getting paid money to keep quiet. Um, and can I live with that? Um, how much? How much can I live with that? And oh, I mean, and then it's like, yeah. I've been through the last six or seven years involved in like short-term, small group, like collectivising of resources and collectivising of finances, which some of, you know, been nice little processes to practice that on. It's like, you know, uh, two or three people, or the, or the money either any of us earn goes into a pot and then we have to like work out how to use that, whether, whether it's within our, for our, our subsistence or towards things, projects, movement building, whatever. And it's, but it's, it's an uncomfortable thing. I mean, it's a lot, yeah. How other people unpick that stuff um, entirely depends on them. Like, same as, like, racism, same as in, like, gender issues. You can, or, or, like, I know there's a group in Scotland after that workshop we did have now, who now spend time once a fortnight as a group talking about money and talking about their relationship to money and talking about the resources they have access to and going through that together and like which is again it's a painful it's a weirdly painful thing for people who consider themselves like anti-capitalists you know oh, why, why why would that bother me but yeah it gets ingrained and some of some people might be like better at it and i don't mean like there's not there shouldn't be like a moral part to this there shouldn't be like oh you give all your money away therefore you are better because that's bullshit um, it's like cause, you know, some people find it much easier to give money away simply because they've lived with security mm. <laughs> um, and there's no threat to their lack of security mm. um, so yeah I know people who you know 18, 19 grand a year uh, for 20, 30 hours a week work and, and they can give away like more than half of that they can live frugally because they're in their 20s 
they'll get to their 30s or maybe keep a bit more and all through any of this they've got like 120 grand sitting in the bank or sitting in a trust fund waiting for them so it, it, it like um i definitely have questions but not very often and usually when my partner's talking to me where it's like maybe i should be saving like i'm gonna but then the other thing it's like no i'm not gonna save because like put 10 pound aside a week like what's that gonna do like i'm 65 years old that's, I don't know how much is that is, 500 times 30. Like, is that really gonna keep me going? By that point, we're gonna, it's fucking apocalypse now. And like, you know, that we won't be using money, we'll be using like crayfish to, to sell things. Um, yeah, I mean, what's the purpose in saving if it's not for like the, the benefit of all of us or a collective good? Um, I think we need to like start these, well, as individuals and as groups, we need to like, um, in get, think more about the patterns of organizing resources that have existed before now and do exist and some of them exist now in like other places um like this was not the this was not what has always been <laughs> like this individualized process this private process it's not always how it's been um you know kinship networks like my when i talked about my um maternal side of the family like they weren't thinking on an individual individual level. They were thinking, talking about on a 30, 40 person level. Fucking more than that. There's loads of them. Um, like, I, and I find it hard to conceive of that now. I was raised in that. I spent 10 years in that. And I, I go, wow, so there's 30, 40 of you living within 500 yards and all the money was collectivized. All the resources were collectivized. That sounds great. I mean, yeah, the, the violence and the abuse and the uh, racism and all that, that, that was less good. But the other bit was really good. Like, it's worth taking that and, and living and going, okay, how can I put that back into practice without the violence and without the abuse and without the racism? Um, I'm just waffling now. <laughs> um, it's nearly nine o'clock, so unless there's a really quick question. Um, otherwise we can wrap it up. Cool. Thank you so much for coming and staying um, and not leaving. Um, and books and there's also stickers that you can give to people and go. The, the stickers are free, they come just, you just get them for coming. Uh, but yeah, thank you.